Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Life's busy. Take this deck. There's heaps to do on it, like um, polishing off this wine. That's tough. Life's pretty good with a Trex deck. Composite decking with no hard maintenance. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. And welcome to the show, made possible by our great friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, today we're joined by one of Australia's most inspiring figures. Michael Milton had his left leg amputated above the knee due to bone cancer when he was a child, and he lost his esophagus and much of his stomach to cancer as an adult. But in between, the two-time cancer survivor won six gold medals at five Winter Paralympic Games. He became Australia's fastest person on skis, and he went on to compete in the 2010 Summer Paralympics as a cyclist, while recording countless other remarkable athletic achievements. Michael Milton is a skier, a cyclist, a trekker, triathlete, runner, world and Australian record holder, and an Olympian. He has defied the odds and destroyed the limits his entire life. Michael, welcome, and thanks for your time. G'day. Where do we where do we find you? It looks like idyllic surrounds at the moment. Uh, it is idyllic surrounds, actually. Um, so I'm up on the nor- northern New South Wales coast uh, with a whole bunch of old skiing friends, and we're up here surfing and mucking around. I'm just back from a bike ride, but uh, one of the major things we're doing is watching the Winter Olympics on television. Well, of course we would be. Now, um, you mentioned the bike ride. I was going to ask you, you know, we've got you to sit still for an hour or so. I hope that's not too hard for you because you haven't done a lot of that in your life, it's fair to say. I mean, the eagerness for a challenge and, and, and to break down barriers for athletes with a disability, has that been one of the main missions that's underpinned your life and your sporting career? I think, it, you know, it's something that just happens outside of that. You know, my motivations are generally pretty selfish and personal. I do things because I want to do them. And if, if other people can take something away from that, then that's, you know, a huge bonus. But in the end, the core of what I do is is what I want, what I want to do. So for all the physical tests you've endured and, and all that you've achieved in that sense, away from all of that, what's the most challenging part of living with a disability? Oh, I think, you know, um, when, when I think back, you know, you start to think, okay, so you've lost a leg, age nine, uh, it's a physical disability and you kind of focus on the physical stuff. Um, but, you know, in the end, that physical stuff is is a couple of years of kind of working things out and sure there's some fine tuning and some refining over the longer term. But for me, probably the hardest part of it was actually the mental side of things, you know, going through puberty, um, having a disability, girlfriends, social life, um, but but even more that, that just feeling comfortable within yourself, with you know who you were, what you look like, doing things differently to other people. Um, 
for me, that was a good kind of 10 or 12 year project. Yeah. And and obviously, as we said, you weren't born with a disability. It was put upon you, albeit at, at a young age. But those barriers that I guess you tell me, but culture seems to place on you and other disabled people, has that also been one of the more difficult things to handle? I think at times, again, when you're younger and, and when other people's uh, opinions or attitudes matter a bit more, then certainly, you know, that's a, a challenge to, um, I guess, be able to open up other people's eyes mm. to what's possible and, and not making those assumptions about what isn't possible. And um, so, yeah, that's something that can be frustrating at times. But, uh, you know, as a, as a pretty mature adult approaching 50 now, you know, way older and fatter and slower than I used to be, uh, I don't really have those sort of issues anymore. So much has happened in your life. That is an understatement, Michael. So perhaps to document it at all, it's probably easy just to go back to the beginning if we if we can. So you're born in Canberra. In 1973, um, siblings? Yes, older sister um, who, you know, very traditional relationship, got on well as kids, went into teenagerdom and hated each other and <laughs> as we've uh, grown into adults, we're good mates again. And what was childhood like in Canberra? I tried. It was pretty cool. You know, my parents uh, started a retail ski business the year I was born. So, um, yeah, there was, uh, you know, skiing was, was at the core of it and always every winter and, um, you know, sitting in school, I wasn't much of a student dreaming about skiing and <laughs> drawing ski racing courses and, and all of those kind of things that come with, with, you know, a massive lifelong passion, but also opportunities from that retail business. You know, we got into sailboards for a while and the family was heavily into that as well as the business going sailboarding every every summer afternoon on the lake in Canberra um, and then we got into rollerblades and and selling rollerblades and and going into rollerblades and rollerblade hockey and and those kind of things so generally pretty physically active but lots of opportunities that came from what my family earned a living from yeah so very much an outdoor upbringing then by the sounds always on the go yeah absolutely. yeah and uh, you know I mean amazing upbringing really fortunate um, my parents had a yacht up in Sydney, so we'd most summer holidays when I was younger, we'd be up on the boat sailing up and down the coast and, uh, you know, all of those experiences that, um, you know, when I look back now were, were absolutely amazing and, uh, you know, definitely didn't appreciate the kind of, um, privileged upbringing that I had, um, when I was going through it, but, but now really appreciate all the opportunities that I was given. How old were you when you first got on the skis and hit the slopes? On two legs, I was three. On one leg, I was ten. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I think we're um we're 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 approaching seven thousand days on skis now. Um. So yeah, it's uh, it's been a major uh, major thing that I've been into for a long, long time, and and still love. You know, going skiing with my own kids, and uh, you know, getting to Threadbow to to do some work, and and seeing the sunrise from the top of the mountain, and yeah, there's so many good things about it. So at the age of nine, or I don't know, maybe even earlier, how did you learn that you had cancer at that age? Oh, my leg felt a bit funny for a week. It didn't hurt or anything. It just felt funny. And then, um, yeah, one night I kind of said, oh, my leg feels funny to my mum. And she poked around in it and said it felt pretty funny to her too. And she took me to the emergency department that night. And um, we saw uh, an x-ray with the cancer eating through the bone and, uh, you know, in the car early next morning, driving up to Sydney Children's Hospital and everything happened pretty quick from there. Jeez, is anyone listening? I mean, especially 
parents like me. I mean, it's just absolutely tragic to have it amputated at nine. I, I just can't imagine the heartbreak. As somebody who's, who's lived with a disability for a long time, you know, I strongly disagree with that right. attitude because, you know, in the end, when you think about what's important in life, to me, it's about passion and um, relationships with people and, and following and doing what you want to do. And from my point of view, one leg has very little to do with any of those things. That That's true in the aftermath, but I'm referring to the moment at the time. As, as a nine-year-old, you're active, you're living a life outdoors. Were, were you that, did you have that perspective at nine? Um, no, certainly that perspective's evolved over time. But, you know, in the original meeting with the doctors where they said, okay, we've done a biopsy, we know what cancer you've got. Here's what the treatment's going to be. We're going to go through, uh, you know, really high doses, doses of chemotherapy for over a year and a half. It's going to be tough. You, you know, your body weight's going to be halved going through the treatment and we're going to have to amputate your leg. You know, the questions that I asked in that were all about, you know, okay, so life's going to be different, but what will I be able to do? And, the, you know, the question in that meeting I asked was, you know, will I still be able to go skiing? And so I think I had a positive slant and attitude from the very beginning, focusing on what, what, what I was going to be able to do rather than looking too much at the negatives. That's amazing. And the reason I use the term or the word tragic is because I've, I think I've heard you say in the past that the bone cancer carries, what, a one in three chance of survival? Is, is that right? Is that accurate? Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, that's statistically back then. Um, that was about right. But, you know, pretty fortunate to be one of the lucky ones. And, um, you know, sometimes I think there's things you can do that you can control in that. But um, in the end, you know, largely it's about the the doctors and the treatment and, uh, you know, your own mental state and attitude and all of these things come together. But, um, yeah, certainly I was one of the lucky ones. And the power of the mind, obviously mum and dad are a massive part of it at, at, at that age as well, to have the, the full buy-in and the, the love and support and the, that ability to not think about what you can't do but what you can do. Yeah, you know, I mean, inevitably the the ripples through your family when this sort of thing happens is is massive. And, uh, you know, whether it be my mum, back then there was no kind of, uh, you know, hospital accommodation for parents or something. There was one bunk room in the corner um, full of parents on the ward itself. And so she's squeezed in there and camping in there for months at a time and, you know, spending countless hours with me and carrying me to the bathroom and back and all of these sort of things. So super tough for her. But um, back at home in the business, you know, my dad had to run the business by himself because she wasn't there. My sister had to live at home with my dad, putting up, pick, pick, putting up with his cooking. And, you know, I mean, it was tough on everybody. <laughs> Very nice. You're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. So Michael Milton, not that he probably needs it, but he finds his inspiration next and then he quickly becomes a source of that himself. That's up next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're chatting to highly decorated Paralympic athlete Michael Milton. So, Michael, um, seeing is believing, isn't it, a lot, a lot of the time, especially at a young age, um, seeing that it is possible. Now, 
You see it around this time, uh, vision of a guy skiing on one leg and the, and the seed perhaps is planted and you're determined to continue in the sport, aren't you? Yeah, we mentioned earlier that, that you know, in that meeting where they gave me my final diagnosis and treatment plan and everything, um, you know, I was all focused about what I could do. And, and the question that I asked was, will I still be able to go skiing? And the answer to that actually came a couple of weeks later because my parents, through their contacts in the ski industry, actually managed to source a, a VHS tape of a guy on one leg skiing. And all through the, the deepest, darkest times in hospital treatment, you know, being just um, sick as anything and, you know, unable to eat because it just bounces straight out and et cetera, et cetera. That would always be the video that I'd, I'd ask my mum to put on and I'd be able to go off and, and watch this guy skiing and go into my own little dreamland and imagine myself and what it would be like learning to ski again and skiing with one leg and, uh, you know, um, super fortunate that um, pretty much as soon as I was physically ready, it was winter. Um, my dad and I headed down to Threadbow. I had my own ski instructor and and from that very first day fell in love with the sport of skiing the the feelings of freedom and speed as you make your way down the mountain um was something that um that yeah just resonated with me from the very first day and and continues to resonate me there's nothing more fun than going skiing indeed it is fun but when for you did it go from fun to competition because you're only 14 when you go to innsbruck 1988 winter paralympics um, giant slalom and slalom, the downhill as well. When did the when did it merge across to? Oh, I want to roll the sleeves up here and and fight for a medal. I think you know early on and even through that games, um, you know the competition side for me was an opportunity to ski more. Um, you know, a good excuse to, <laughs> to go overseas and ski to, to, you know, get out of school and train in Australia and, and you know, the evolution of, of that into, uh, into you know, really wanting to be um, competitive and, and win races and stuff happened through my teenage years and, um, yeah, but, I mean, at the core of it, it was always just a desire to ski more and the opportunities seemed to, to come to ski more when I entered competitions and, and gave it a little bit of a different purpose more than just fun. Yeah, so I guess materialistically, you leave Innsbruck in 88 empty-handed, but you wouldn't go home from a Games empty-handed again. Albertville 92, men's slalom, LW2 event. You're still only a teenager. Now, I think the goal going in wasn't it just to finish on the podium, well, you did that. You finished on the top step. I mean, can you take us back to this? This must have been an unbelievably powerful moment for you. You're still a teenager too. Yeah, absolutely. It was huge at the Albertville Games and, and lots of good stuff happening um, before it, um, getting into form, um, starting to win some medals at international events and stuff, although I'd, I'd never really won an international race before I won the slalom at the Paralympics. And, uh, you know, that week, that day within the, the whole Australian team, you know, we'd never won a winter medal before and we came in. Um, I won gold and silver. Um, my teammates, Michael Norton, won bronze and um dave uh, dave monk um won a bronze as well so three of us going home with medals was um absolutely amazing and for the guys some of the guys who'd been um involved with the team for a long time friend of mine ron finneran who was um uh you know been involved in the game since 76 to then in 92 actually be a part of a medal-winning team after going away so many times empty-handed was uh, was absolutely fantastic for the whole team, the whole environment. 
It was back to business for Michael Milton this week in his parents' ski shop at Fishwick, a 19-year-old who's made sporting history. Gold and silver medals proudly draped around his neck, the first Australian to win a Winter Olympic medal of any colour. I really went over, hoping that with four months skiing and a little bit of improvement, that if I skied well on the day, I might make a bronze. And uh, even, even up till the day of the race, I was still thinking like that. And then after that, it was just unbelievable. History has been made, but it will be years before the significance of the moment has been realised. The name M. Milton permanently etched into the Olympic record. Do you, have you thought about that, what the significance of that is? Not yet. <laughs> I'm still so happy about just, just going so well. It's great. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a really tough kind of time during Paralympic sport um, to the point where the CEO of, of the Australian Paralympic Committee actually um, put a mortgage on a house to, to help fund us while we are overseas. Um, it, was, it, it was tough going, but, um, you know, the rewards of, of coming home with some hardware um, just made the whole team ecstatic. Yeah, you receive a, a medal of the Order of Australia as well, of course, and gold would follow in Lily Hammer, a four medal uh, haul there. And at Salt Lake, obviously, you produce a historical four gold ca- uh, clean sweep of the Alpine ski events in your class. You're the Laureus World Sports Person of the Year with a disability. I mean, this is all unfolding relatively quickly at this foray into public life. Did it, you're well versed <laughs> in it now, but did it suit you at the time? You just skipped through eight years oh, of history. It was, um, <laughs> you know, it was it, for me. It was yeah, you know, long term projects and and you know, continuing a, an amazingly an amazing lifestyle with um, you know a love for skiing and and lots of travel overseas and um, yeah, lots of fun stuff and you know, doing it all on a on a pretty tight budget, um, but just just you know, being young and free and having fun um, and, and, you know, having a, having a purpose behind all of that, I think from my point of view, just added to it all. So six gold from five Paralympic Games, six World Championship gold medals as well to go with it. So to not only deal with the, I guess, the setback early in your life, but then, to then develop that thirst for elite competition, Michael, I mean, that needs hunger, drive, competitiveness. It needs a will to win. Where did that come from or, or was it within you the whole time? I think, you know, I think I'm a competitive person, naturally. That's kind of, you know, for me, winning is more fun than not winning. And so, um, you know, putting my best in and and trying to become, um, you know, better than any other one-legged skiers was important. And, you know, amazing support through the years and great relationships with coaches and, um, yeah, um, yeah, great time. But I think, you know, in the end, the drive behind it and, and, you know, I was always happy to sacrifice other opportunities or um, other things going on because skiing was just always at the top of my priority list. And, uh, you know, it's probably a pretty imbalanced way to live like that where, where your sport is, is number one, but at the same time it's a, a great recipe to be successful. After Salt Lake came the need for speed. So in 2003 you decided to do something uh, new Speed skiing, I guess the drag racing of, of alpine sport. Did anyone try to talk you out of this one, Michael? No, not really. Partly because I think I've been talking about it and thinking about it for such a long time because, uh, you know, I became aware. Um, 1993, I was in Breckenridge, Colorado. I remember the day it was bucketing snow um, and uh, training was off. So uh, we're wandering around town, wandered in a bookshop, 
looked at the girl Guinness World Records and, of course, flicked to the skiing records page and went, oh, look, there's a world speed skiing record for an athlete with one leg. One day I'd like to have a go at that. And uh, found myself after Salt Lake um, winning four gold medals. Everything was great, except I was flat broke and I really couldn't afford to continue competing. So I took a job um, in a ski resort in Colorado and uh, worked for the season. And at the end of that season, um, had a bit of spare cash and did what I did with all my spare cash throughout my whole, most of my <laughs> athletic career, go and spend it on training and skiing. So, uh, yeah, bought some equipment, uh, went to a training event in Canada, um, went to France and um, started speed skiing and, and set a new uh, world record at 186 odd kilometres an hour that year, breaking the 20-plus-year-old uh, the um, 183 kilometres an hour. And then every year after that, you better your own record, don't you? Until in April 2006, you, you go north of 213 kilometres an hour. So the fastest Australian skier ever. If you're gonna nail it, nail it well. That was awesome. Good job. Hey, you are the man that does the biggest ball on this planet. <laughs> Under pressure, it just happens, right? I'm just blown away. You worked for three years to get to a level you think you can do 200 and all of a sudden when you're under pressure and you're at your most nervous all of that stuff you just absolutely nail one and you put down something like that like I don't even know the speed yet 210.4 210.4 something and it's just you know I mean I was kind of thinking up there that I had a really good shot at you know 205 around there but it, I just can you put into words what it's like to go that fast? Oh, you know, it's, I think it's everything you'd expect it to be. It's, um, you know, fear-inducing. You stand at the top of the mountain and you just, uh, yeah, um, requires a lot of mental discipline to control your emotions, to control your fear, to to go off. And, and then, you you know, you push yourself off this ledge and you just, the feelings of exhilaration and acceleration and, and fear kind of all mix in together. And, and, you know, that's mitigated by your own discipline to focus on the task at hand, to think about your technique, to think about what's going on. And, um, and then, you know, that amazing feeling of relief as you, you come through the timing zone, you stand up, you start to slow down, everything gets comfortable, and then you get a chance to look up and, and read your result. Um, and, um, you know, for me, it's a, 
a moment that you love, remember forever. And, and uh, yeah, you know, every time I talk about it, it gives me goosebumps. It's, yeah. um, you know, it was a really cool um, experience learning about yourself in a pressure situation like that and um, to be able to come through it um, successful, unhurt, um, you know, it was, um, yeah, definitely, uh, something I was immensely happy with. And as an athlete with a disability, ho- holding an open Australian record as Australia's fastest ever skier is something that I'm immensely proud of. And, uh, you know, it's only the Australian record in the end, I'm a big fish in a small pond, but, uh, you know, it's, it's still something that, that, yeah, it just means a lot to me personally. You mentioned getting through it unhurt. I mean, can I just state the overwhelmingly obvious that that is an immensely dangerous uh, exercise to embark on? I mean, there's no what you get it wrong at that speed. I mean, it, you, you shudder at the thought of what would happen there. Yeah, you know, I've been um, seen a few serious crashes, um, visited some friends in hospital afterwards. Um, yeah, lost a couple of friends on that speed ski track. So, um, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it's serious business and, um, it's something that, um, yeah, I think a lot of the athletes, um, are true adrenaline junkies, you know, they're there almost and, and speed skiing almost to scare themselves. And I probably came to it with a, a bit more of an attitude towards the same end of crazy where the, the goal wasn't to scare myself. The goal was to go as fast as possible. And uh, and I think focusing on that is a, a safer and a obviously more successful way to approach um, speed skiing as a sport. Can't imagine the buzz in the first 60 seconds after you get to the bottom. Yes, you know, um, I remember the, the previous record, the open, the Australian record holder, mate of mine, Nick, who skied at 212.26 kilometres an hour. It was about 10 minutes after my run when I got my phone out and sent him a text message. But, you know, your hands are still shaking <laughs> and, uh, you know, coming down off that adrenaline rush is, um, yeah, something else. Amazing. You with This Is Your Journey, brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can visit them online at tobinbrothers.com.au. So a swag of Winter Paralympic medals, a speed record that still hasn't satisfied Michael Milton. New challenges await, but there was another setback to overcome first. And that- You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with Australia's most successful winter Paralympian, the inspirational Michael Milton. So, Michael, after 2006, Turin, you'd be forgiven for resting on your success, I suppose, and basking in the glow of your skiing achievements. Six golds, five games... But that's not your style. You take up cycling and you set your sights on the Beijing Summit Paralympics of 2008. Why? Oh, you know, I think um, as many athletes are, you come to the end of your career and your your body's telling you it's the end. 
Um, but mentally I probably wasn't ready for that. Um, that combined with an invite from the um, cycling coach of the Australian Paralympic team to come and do a little trial on a velodrome and play around and, and experience something different and, um, you know, just get a gauge of where I might be at and where I might be able to go. Um, yeah, it was just seemed an opportunity. And, um, you know, I think um, I'd loved riding my bike for a long time. Um, you know, I'd ridden Brisbane to Sydney with a mate in uh, 2001 and, and you know, a bike was something that it, that it was always um, there for training and, and something that I loved doing. So uh, the opportunity to go and ride a velodrome for the first time was pretty exciting and uh, I guess things happened um, from, from there. Um, having a... I guess an income from corporate speaking and conferences and stuff post-singing career um, meant that there was a fair bit of time for training still. And, um, and yeah, my head wasn't ready to grow old and, and be done. So uh, I thought if I, I try a different sport, then that um, might make things go a little bit longer. Well, you mentioned the training. I think it was only six months of it that got you to the Australian Track Cycling Championships in the individual pursuit, 3,000 metres. Uh, you win gold in that and you're selected to compete at the World Track Championships. So it didn't take you long to come to groups with it, it's got to be said. You know, there's obviously lots of history of, of training and, um, you know, a lot of similarities in terms of the, the physical requirements of an alpine skier and a, a, a track pursuiter. So, um, yeah, there's there was some uh, there's some technical things there. Um, you know, I think my first session, my coach described me pedalling in squares, not circles. But, uh, you know, a bit of work on technique, but the, the physical stuff was – needed to continue and ramp back up, don't get me wrong, but, um, you know, there was still that strong history there that brought me in pretty quickly. So July 2007, we're, what, 14 months out from the Games, you're diagnosed with esophageal cancer. Now, the perspective you had at nine, I imagine you have as an adult in moments like this or not? Yeah, you know, life was pretty tough through that period. I'd withdrawn from the Australian track cycling team with, you know, um, not un- just being unable to train and not really understanding or knowing why. Um, the whole thought of going back into chemo and treatment and, um, yeah, you know, some of those childhood experiences, again, was certainly one I wasn't looking forward to. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, there was there was a future ahead. Um, I had a, a young... Um, young daughter um, and a family to live for and to be able to try and survive for and, you know, lots of reasons to live. So, uh, you know, that brings out the fight in you pretty quickly. Yeah. So did, having just, I'm sure you get asked this often, but having gone through it all before many years earlier, of course, did it make it tougher, albeit different circumstances as a youngster or, 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 or uh-huh. you know, somewhat not, I won't say easier, but you perhaps have built up a resilience that few people would have at that point in your life. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I was um, going through some medical procedures a couple of weeks ago and have a pretty bad needle, needle phobia. If, you know, the speed skiing, all the rest of it um, is scary, but the thing I'm most scared of is needles. Um, and uh, after childhood chemo and running out of veins and them trying to jab me in different spots and all of those things. Yeah. And, um, you know, I kind of felt uh, fatigued and like my, um, I guess, resilience toughness was just kind of coming to an end that that I couldn't go through this that many times and um then I'm lying down in a in a scanning machine and um and just going maybe I'm just out of practice maybe I need to do this more not less oh. to just 
build up this toughness and get used to it and and these sorts of things again. And um, so, yeah, certainly, um, you know, I was pretty motivated, ready for a fight, um, ready to take what was required. Um, but, yeah, by the end of it, I think that um, yeah, that fatigue of just having to work all the time to – to overcome my needle phobia, yeah. um, to, to overcome all the pain and discomfort and fatigue and, um, you know, not being able to do any of the things you want to do um, certainly has uh, drained you a little bit. Yeah, I reckon. And and not to embarrass you here, but by this point in your life, you obviously got a, a tremendous profile that you didn't have as, as a kid and your story is well known. So the support, the support must have been huge. Yeah, there's there's always lots going on and, and emails from other people and organisations and, uh, yeah, certainly uh, some of the opportunities there, you know, got great support from uh, from a home ski resort, a Threadbow, who helped me through their connections with, you know, accommodation for my family while I was going through treatment in Sydney and some of those sorts of things were, were absolutely amazing. So, um, yeah, some, some great support from particularly the skiing community. Did you think the Olympics were shot? Yeah, um, you know, I, I kind of had to put that um, that goal on hold, and um, you know, just see how treatment pans out, see when it finishes, and um, you know, after chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and then the major stomach surgery, which is the big one, and and has an impact on every day of my life. Um, I remember I'd been about a month out of surgery, and I went for my first bike ride. I went around my block twice. It was about four kilometres and, uh, you know, went back to bed afterwards and slept for three hours and, uh, you know, in a pretty poor poor physical state. But at the same time, I'd been outside and I'd riding my bike and it was fun and I loved it. And, uh, you know, the next day I I sat down at the computer and uh, started to read the um, selection criteria for the Beijing Games and started to put a bit of a timeline and a bit of a plan together of what I needed to be doing by by each time, by nationals, by the selection deadlines, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, The day after that, I was in touch with my coach having a chat about that plan and – yeah, so um, things probably ramped up pretty quickly then. And, uh, you know, I guess after um, diagnosis, you, you know, all of my appointments, all of my corporate speaking gigs, all of my income all got cancelled for um, the next 12 months. So I also had a fair bit of time on my hands and, and being able to um, – to have the support of my family, to be able to go out for um, as many bike rides as I could handle um, and and do the training and know that my family was taken care of and that when I got home, there'd be, you know, nutritious food there waiting for me and support um, really made everything possible, which was, was, was amazing. Yep. And it was also amazing that you got to China in the end too, at the age of 35 to compete in the summer Paralympics. Uh, great to have your company on. This is your journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. We'll be back with uh, this week's guest, Michael Milton on the other side of this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And Michael Milton's been our guest today. Michael, if you if you ever had a bucket list, it must have lines completely through it in 2022 as we speak to you. The Paralympics um, may have been behind you or close to behind you, but there was more to achieve. Tell us about Kokoda because you ended up doing it twice. Yeah, um, you know, I, I love to be able to make opportunities from from what I do, and um, yeah, an opportunity came up to go and walk the Kokoda Track with a group, and uh, you know, I love being outdoors. I love uh, challenging myself. I love experiencing life to the full, and so when you get those opportunities, you just got to grab them with both hands. So to be able to go um, walk the Kokoda Track once, and then uh, another opportunity came up where we mountain biked from the north coast. Um, at Boona, to Kokoda Village, put our bikes on the plane, walked the track, and then had our uh, bikes delivered back down to the south end of the track and rode down to Port Moresby. Um, all of these things were um, absolutely fantastic opportunities. Uh, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with my sister, um, and um, we shared a tent and uh, suffered together and, and really, you know, um, bonded uh, really, really well and got to know each other as adults, probably more than more than just about anything else. So, uh, yeah, some of these opportunities have, have been amazing and, and sure, they're challenges, sure, they're tough, but, uh, you know, by far way more rewarding um, and, and exciting and, and, yeah, just positive um, than, uh, than not doing them. So, uh, yeah, anything like that comes up, I'm usually there with bells on. <laughs> you were on the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. Geez, I watched that video. You are emotional at the top and fair enough too. I think Jenny, your sister, w- w- did it pretty tough too with some altitude sickness. But that was, that was a, a, am I right in saying one of the more emotional sort of moments in your, in your pursuits? Oh, you know, I think um, I'm a bit of an emotional sook sometimes and uh, whether it be, uh, you know, those moments maybe after you've won a a Paralympic gold medal or set a world record, there's the the jubilation, but sometimes, uh, you know, in in the more private moments, there's – yeah, there's a bit of emotion and a few tears and, and, uh, yeah, just when that – accomplishment really hits you um it's it's a little bit different and uh to have to put that on camera at the top of Kilimanjaro when you're shattered and exhausted and and uh you know worried about my sister who was behind the camera here we are at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro Aru Peak 5896 meters you can feel every one of them, not only in the just breathing and, and trying to talk at the same time, but also in the fatigue in the body that it took to get up here. I guess for me, uh, you know, it's a pretty tough process to go through. Starting midnight, going through, you know, the first couple of hours, you feel good, you feel strong. Then the cold sets in, you're... Uh, you know, mentally you have some doubts, are you going to make it or you're not? And then the cold really sets in and you decide you can't. And then uh, the sun comes up and saves you. I guess you can tell it means a lot to me to be here, to be able to set a challenge, to be able to climb the mountain, to be able to go through the process with my sister who really 
had to slog it out even harder than I did. Um, it was only a couple of hours after that interview on the way down. Um, she'd gotten some help to get down and was ahead of me, and I, I came in and, um, you know, checking on her in the tent, hearing her lungs bubbling with the stardom and edema and, and some of those cool sorts of things. So, um, yeah, um, you know, there's times I've been emotional. Top Achilles was definitely one of them. Um, uh, unfortunately for me on the podium at, at the World Sports Awards, um, yeah, there's been lots of times I've, I've had to uh, work pretty hard to hold back the tears. <laughs> Fair enough, too. It must be said. So tears of happiness. So. Exactly, exactly. I mean, to to and that's what comes, doesn't it, from setting a challenge, sometimes an immense one, and achieving a challenge, and the satisfaction that comes from that. There was another one. The Guinness World Records were broken. The fastest marathon on crutches. You did it on the Gold Coast. Five hours, 23 minutes, 20 seconds. What was that like physically? I wanted to ask you about your hands. I mean, they must have copped an absolute pummeling, the hands. Yeah, I'm not I'm not a big fan of the wheelchair, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, at the end of uh, the end of running a road marathon, uh, walking was a big challenge. I just couldn't put any weight through my hands anymore, and uh, I had to jump in a wheelchair. There was a, a small consolation the fact that Deke was pushing me, and he was telling me the last time he was in a wheelchair at the end of a marathon. But, <laughs> yeah. um, the uh, you know, I mean, obviously in that sort of event, you just you just draining everything out of yourself you're, you're just going till you're absolutely empty and um yeah you know um in some ways having to get in a wheelchair at the end really just shows that that you did empty the tank and that you did push as hard as you could and uh yeah being out there with uh with a great group of friends around me and and support and um yeah uh, there's been a couple of kind of instances like that i ran a uh, a 50k ultra marathon in mm. the blue mountains um, you know, up and down like a yo-yo stairs, um, et cetera. And it's very similar experience like that, but, um, you know, to do it with friends around you, to do it with uh, great support and, um, yeah, crossing the finish lines, uh, definitely a, a, a real highlight, and a, a great moment. Gee, these are all such amazing, powerful life experiences that you've got under the belt, which, which makes you such, um, compelling listening on the speaking circuit. I imagine you're still busy in that space. You're still getting around and, and delivering your speeches. I think COVID, obviously, um, you know, a number of conferences and stuff like that. Mm. And, um, you know, it's no longer my kind of primary work and, and thing that I'm putting time and energy into. Um, these days, I have run my own business, um, which is called Quizic Alley. And uh, we're a specialist store selling licensed Harry Potter products. And uh, we have a lot of fun in there. I, um, I have a character in the shop. Um, so for those Harry Potter fans out there, you get this straight away. But if you're not a Harry Potter fan. There's a character in Harry Potter. His name's Nearly Headless Nick. He's played by John Cleese in the movies and he's a ghost who nearly lost his whole head because the executioner didn't sharpen the axe enough. But um, I go by the character Nearly Legless Mick. (laughs) I'm familiar with the John Cleese character and now I'm familiar with your character. That's fantastic. So where can people find this, uh, Michael? So um, our original shop opened in Canberra uh, just over three and a half years ago um, out in Fishwick. And then uh, just over 12 months ago, we opened in Sydney and we're in Dremoyne. And online as well? Yes, of course, squizzagalley.com. I didn't take you for a Harry Potter fan, I'll be honest. 
I, you know, after so many years as an athlete and jock and all doing all those sort of things, my nerd side had to come out. <laughs> hey, I've got to thank you so much, Michael, for donating your time today. You are a phenomenon. Your strength of will, your incredible outlook on life just can't be understated. Unstoppable is probably a word that, that comes to mind in and out of competition. Your achievements are awe-inspiring and you've never let your disability become a handicap and your attitude has always been about, you know, finding a way. And it's such a powerful message. I'm glad you could share it with us. Well done on all you've achieved and, and best of luck for the future. Thank you very much. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online. You can find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91